This is FM Forward, a podcast brought to you by IFMA Boston about the rapidly changing landscape of the FM and how to remain on top of your game. I'm your host, Jackie Falla. This season, we're going to investigate all the ways in which risk can plague your organization, the myriad and chaotic ways in which your business operations could be disrupted, and techniques for avoiding, mitigating, transferring, or accepting these risks in the interest of your company. Each week, we'll talk to an expert in their field, and before we sign off, we'll share three tips for getting it right. Welcome back to FM Forward, where peeps, place, and process merge. Today, we're going to tackle a serious subject active assailant training, more commonly referred to as active shooter training. I'll share with you some stats about active shooter incidents. We'll talk with David Trout, Enterprise Preparedness at Raytheon Company, and Ryan DeStefano, VP of Global Assistance Services at OnCall International, both involved in their organization's active assailant training and preparedness programs, and we'll close with tips on how to launch an active assailant program at your company or bring it to the next level. Let's get started. Being in an active shooter incident is not something I want to experience, but 70% of all active shooter incidents take place within businesses or educational settings. And I don't want my listeners to be one of the 25% of companies out there that are unprepared for these events. David and Ryan, thank you both for being here with me today. I understand what an active shooter is and the threat they pose. What other threats fall under the active assailant category? Um, in terms of, uh, I guess, general terrorism, if you're looking at assailants, it's. I would uh, step back and look at the broad spectrum of workplace violence. Um, and... That can come about in many different ways. Um, we typically see those issues, um, they're typically human resource issues. At Raytheon? Yes. And, you know, I, I can get into it a little more later. We do have a, a threat management team at each of our sites that um, stands up and deals with those when we need to. But generally, they fall under that broad spectrum of... Um, human resource and security issues. So that's my experience at Raytheon. Yeah, and I think this, uh, just to you know expand upon it, you know, you have what I would break down into kind of two categories, your internal threat uh, or your external threat. And depending on the type of industry you're in, you may have more likelihood for that one versus the other. So as you mentioned, Raytheon, the employee issue, the employee domestic issue, the um, disgruntled employees, those types of things. Whereas, you know, retail environments, healthcare environments, you know, might start to experience more of the outside threat where it's uh, mental health or it's just um, a victim of what neighborhood you're in, you know, suspect at large and those types of things. And then, um, you know, you can get into the lone wolf and open space shooter type of categories like, um, you know, the Las Vegas shooting and, and those types of things. So they run the gamut, but I think that's why we're here to talk about um, how you can train for the different types of it. But, but I think it's interesting you definitely using the term active assailant. Um, I know when I was starting to build out training and then we were calling it active shooter, um, it became very apparent that not only was active shooter too um, sensational to, to use as a terminology, but um, that it wasn't just gunshot or you know gun related crime so you have your veh vehicular type of incidents you have stabbings that can be just as you know just as dangerous as well so de depending on the type of weapon they're using it doesn't necessarily matter it's still you have an active threat that's in your building or in your environment that you you need to take care of and your people need to be ready for and ryan makes a, a great point that um the words that you use uh, matter and make a difference when you're trying to move forward a program in a corporate environment um, active shooter is a sensational uh, title 
we have gone down the road of using workplace violence prevention or workplace violence response. That's how we market it, for lack of a better word, to our employees. Um, it's a softer sell, and uh, especially with some leadership, if you talk talk about active shooter, their mind is going to go to the last big news event and all the terrible things that happen. If you talk about workplace violence and education and prevention, it's a little bit more of a softer sell to get them moving down that path. But, um, you know, in the end, dealing with the same thing. There's a lot to kind of unpack in what both of you just said. Ryan, you made mention of open office environments, and I'm going to tackle that later because we are in the design and construction industry here. And believe me, that's all we see in terms of the trend right now is open office environments. And David, you know, you make mention of being careful around this language and the importance of that to getting people comfortable with even participating in this training. I think that's so, so important. Um, and I know that the programs might look different if you're in an office environment or you're in a multi-building campus or, as you say, um, there's a healthcare environment or a, a point of entry that comes right off of a street, for instance. Um, so we'll get into some of those logistics in just a little bit because I know that um, the assailant can come in the form of a, a truck that's mowing down people or um, bringing a vehicle in that they exit and a bomb is set off. So lots of different avenues for threats to come in, unfortunately. Um, so we'll take a look at those things as we move through our discussion this morning. How might I convince my company to provide education and training if they don't already have it? David, you said the words I use really matter, so I'm guessing that I shouldn't be sharing stats about the tripling of incidents since 2011 or the fact that 21 deadly mass shootings took place in the first nine months of 2019 alone. Is that just a bad idea? Um, you know, I, I think you need to approach it f from many different uh, perspectives. The statistics are important. What's happened uh, close to your work sites or campuses are important. Um, you know, we've, we've taken an approach that um, really the way we've been successful has been leveraging partnerships. Uh, we All our um, site leads have great relationships with local police, fire, emergency medical services. One of the key things that we've done, before you can do these things, before you can mature your program, you need to have a willing partner. You need to have a police department that will come in during National Preparedness Month when you're just doing awareness edu and education during lunchtime and just answer questions about you know workplace violence and active shooter response we did that um, before we ever went near a full-scale exercise and we had our security leads at each site reach out to their public safety counterparts and that was a centerpiece of the planning we did for um, our events in September. So, you know, we've used many things to sort of build education, awareness, and momentum for the program, um, including um, I spent 11 years um, with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts before I came to Raytheon. And one of the great things we always did was whenever we planned a tabletop exercise, or an exercise of any type, we invited any internal or external partners that might um, play a part of that. And coming from the public sector, I had the relationships with the police chiefs and the fire chiefs and the EMS companies. And 
we did our first exercises and I just naturally invited them. What's that exercise like? Do you put G.I. Joe's on the table and build up Legos and barricade and what what's a tabletop ex exercise? It's discussion based and it um, it will take you through a scenario in a number of moves. And typically we use a, a slide deck and we'll just outline a scenario and walk. Typically it's members of our incident management team and site incident support team, you know, through, uh, it could be any, uh, any kind of hazard. Um, and in particular, before we ever went down the road of full scale exercises, we table topped or discussed what, uh, an active shooter and response type exercise would be. We just talk through it. And one of the points that I made when we plan these out, I oversee many sites for Raytheon. And so I lean on um, a site preparedness coordinator to do the actual planning for the exercise and do the invites. And I made a case that well, we can all sit around a table and when the active shooter comes in, we can all make guesses of how long it's going to take the police department to arrive, um, who they're going to want to see, what they're going to do, and how things are going to play out. Or we can invite the police department in and they will tell us exactly how many minutes it will take them to get to our facility, exactly what they're going to do, um, and exactly what our people should be doing and once they evacuate where they should be and you know the fact that it's a crime scene and we're going to need your folks for a lot longer than just once the incident's over so that was that's pretty amazing partnership yeah and you know most police departments want to um if given the opportunity come into your facility and just do a walkabout they want to become familiar with your buildings, your layouts, uh, anything that's um, you know unique uh, to do with either your manufacturing processes or um, your building itself, and to understand it. They want to give their uh, patrol uh, um, folks the opportunity to do that too, so that when a real incident happens, they know the facility. They know the entrance they're going in, and they know they've been there before. Mm. This isn't a first-time kind of thing. So, you know, if you've never invited the police department in, excellent first step. Invite them in for some coffee and donuts. Sounds cliche, but, you know, uh, tour them around. Uh, talk to them about what you do, anything that's special about your facility or unique, and just you know, shake hands, make some small talk, and get to know each other. Excellent first step. Sounds great. Ryan, what can you share with us about how you approached it? Yeah, I think just to get a little back to, you know, convincing your company of the need, um, because there's various company cultures out there. And for instance, uh, you know, one of the companies I had worked for was very hesitant to have any police presence on campus. So even though the security guys could develop a relationship and a rapport and have those donuts and coffee conversations, we didn't want to go any more than that because it would upset the employee population. So I think, um, uh, you know, when you talked about using statistics, I think it's it, you need to know your audience, your stakeholders, who are you trying to convince, who you're trying to sell, right? Is it general counsel? Is it the HR organization? Is it the security manager? If you have a security manager, I'm guessing your audience has various levels of maturity of how many stakeholders they have that are engaged in this process or, or even available. So I'm sure many of them don't even have security managers um, full time at their company. So Indeed. it's on them. Um, but the one statistic I think that, that helped when I was trying to, to build a program, and it had just come out because the FBI had just released their, I think it was 13-year study of active shooter incidents. And it was till about from 2000 to 2014. And the one that they, they that struck with us was that 60% of the time, uh, they're over before the police arrive. So uh, I think it was less than five minutes. So they started calling it, and a lot of training companies started calling it the first responder gap. So we started to pivot that and use that as the need to train. Because um, there's various levels of training you, you want to do. You certainly want your security force to be trained on how to handle an incident and what to look for when people are coming in the building. And that's generally uh, what a lot of companies are going to be doing anyway. 
you have your HR folks that are trained on, you know, threat management to a certain extent. You know, how do you deal with um, when employees are coming to you with issues and they're reporting things and, and have a process around what they're trained for behavior recognition in so workplace that's violence. that's preventative, Ryan? That's preventative work, right. Okay. And then you have your general population, which is the one we were trying to um, get educated. And that was because we recognized the biggest risk when we talk about risk management was their ability to respond, have the mental agility to know what to do in those first couple of minutes. Um, so those tabletops certainly help with leadership and going through how we're going to respond, how we're going to do things, and, and what we need to cascade, understand what law enforcement is going to do so we can uh, interact with them, which is extremely important. I agree with David of, of building that relationship before an incident is to happen. Um, but that general population was an, an area we needed to address. And I think you know, using that statistic of um, no matter how much we put into place when it comes to access control or guard training, that these incidents can and do happen everywhere and in every setting. Um, so that, you know, your biggest risk is actually the employee at the, at the very, you know, bottom of the line there needing to know what to do um, within your facility or within their specific situation, depending on what's going on. Why is that true? Um, you know, it, so if there's a couple of things to this. So if you, you talk about how to convince your company to provide education and training. So I, I look at it a couple of ways. There's, there's the basic things that we should be doing from what I'd call the duty of care perspective, right? And many of your facility managers might be familiar with that terminology via OSHA. So that legal and moral obligation to provide reasonable care against foreseeable risk. So nowadays, you know, I remember when I first started out in the security industry, it was very common. We did two fire drills a year and everybody was trained in fire drills. We even got to the point where we were doing bomb threat drills and how to search for a bomb threat when, you know, um, when a bomb threat was to come in because it was, you know, it was back in the late nineties. It was very, you know, that was the topic, you know, and then it moved on to anthrax and we started doing, how do you recognize if there's, you know, those types of materials around. So it's an indictment of the times that we're now at a period after having seen this for two decades, almost increasingly that active shooter, active assailant has become something that needs to be trained and that the, every employee needs to know on a regular basis. And it's almost become, at least in my mind, that basic, you know, um, element that needs to be in your program, you know, no matter what you have from a physical perspective, protection standpoint. So it was the same thing with fire. You have fire suppression systems, you have fire detection systems, but you always had to train twice a year. So And you don't want the untrained employee rushing out the door um, with their hands, you know, hidden from view and getting shot by a police officer? Right. That's certainly a risk. I mean, it speaks to what David talked about. You know, when they come in, they will train exactly what they expect and what their commands are and what they want your employees to do. Um, and that's helpful. Um, but it's also giving them the mental freedom to know. This is one of the things that we, we started to uncover when we did a lot of research was giving them some level of confidence of what they should do, whether or not it was just fight. So we talk about run, hide, fight as a, you know, kind of common um, way to train folks these days. Um, but there was a lot of hesitation of, of, of giving that guidance because are we, are we liable now? Are we telling employees what they should do? And now we're liable that if somebody decides to run and they, and they get caught up in the crossfire, now we're, we're in trouble. If they've locked themselves in a closet and then they get, um, now we're in trouble. Or if they and decide to take on the intruder, now we're in trouble. But you know, the way we tried to communicate and educate was that here's your options. Here are your options and you need to know your options and you need to know which one to use in which situation because it's going to be different every time. It's going to be different in every facility. And you should know this not only for your workplace, but for everywhere in the world right now. So it was a way we were able to sell it as it's a, it's a life skill we can help. And the other, the other one I always lend on to, at the end of the day when I couldn't finally convince somebody, it was like, you know, did your kid have a lockdown drill? this past week or this past uh, semester, because I'm sure they did, because I know my five-year-olds and six-year-olds have been through them. So, um, you know, our kids are being prepared on it. We should treat our adults that are in our workplace to the same to the same manner of being able to make sure they have the, the skills and the, um, the mental fortitude to be able to know what to do if that was to happen. Ryan, that, that's all really excellent advice on how to approach the leadership of your organization um, with the pitch, essentially on why the training is important. Thank you for sharing that. Hey, it's Tom, Chapter President of IFMA Boston. Thanks for listening. I'll get you back to the content in just a minute, but I'd like to take this opportunity to connect the dots, if you will, between this podcast series and our FM Forward Live event. A while back, we challenged our volunteers to explore the concept of a one-day conference, specifically for facility managers. Was it feasible? Was there interest? And if so, how would it work? The consensus answer was yes, but with a specific goal in mind. 
to give FMs an opportunity to see, hear, and share the real stories about problems they face on a daily basis and those that they'll face in the future. Out of this came the concept of FM Forward and its tagline, Learn What's Next. We see FM Forward as a brand that offers valuable experiences for your career. The podcast and the live event are meant to complement each other and help you in your profession. We hope that it'll evolve over time and it can be a new way for you to get value out of your FM membership. So keep listening and definitely join us for the FM Forward live event. This year's conference is on March 31st in Waltham, Mass. And best of all, for professional members, it's free. Check out the lineup on fmforward.org or ifmaboston.org. Okay, back to the show. If I could jump in. Um, Absolutely, David. And I'll explain how our program really got momentum. You talked about um, different types of assailants. And typically, it's we were doing two tabletops a year. And my site leads are sitting around asking me, well, what should I do? You know, I have my threat and vulnerability assessment. I've done the top five threats, you know, the last two or three years. What are we going to do? And I remember sitting down with um, one of our folks and saying, well, you know, we have open campuses now. And security has always, the employees have always complained to security. There's no guards at the gate. Anyone can drive through. And I said, well, let's highlight that. And to what you brought up earlier, Jackie, I said, well, why not bring a nondescript box truck through with a bomb inside? And wow, isn't that a coincidence that the loading dock sits right underneath the dining center? Let's blow it up and have a mass casualty incident. So we did that. And part of our... Theoretically uh, speaking. Theoretically speaking. (laughs) I hope. (laughs) Yes. And um, one of the beautiful things about how this all played out was our the lead of our site incident support team the team that gathers together cross function and cross program when there's a prolonged business disruption to figure out how we're going to continue operating they're sitting at the table our um, site executive was our site incident support team chair also the vice president of finance for our business. We brought in the police department. And I'll never forget, he was quite animated and used used some uh, colorful language. But I remember him pointing to our VP of finance saying, you need to do an active shooter drill and we can help you. And the interesting part is we had done a drill at a smaller site on the West Coast previously um, on a, a Navy base, but we had a very, you know, willing partner and, um, a a federal agency that was kind of ordered to seek these kind of things out. So we got paired with them. Then that was our first one. But the second one was at a large facility. And I'm not sure that any kind of case we ever could have made to this woman would have resonated but we let the police make the case for us. You know, I'll just never forget the sergeant just pointing his finger at her saying, you need to do this. And she got on board to the extent that she actually came in on a day off and was one of our victims. Wow. And, you know, throughout the planning process participated. And it was just interesting that, um, again, going back to what I first brought up, that relationship with public safety and how that ended up playing out in in such a positive way um, to really launch um, the program forward. It was sort of its its next level, next step, Um, because we... Yeah, that's a high level of training. And you, it sounds like you did it using third-party credibility. You didn't have to make the argument. They made that argument for you. Mm -hmm. And I think if you piggybacked Ryan's approach, which is do that duty of care benchmarking study 
find out what your peers and competitors are doing in terms of the training. Combine those two things and you have a really strong case for just why it's important to roll out a program at your organization. Does it matter, Ryan, how big or small your company is? Yeah, it does. And I think that was a great point. Um, you mentioned the benchmark. Um, so, you know, one of the first things I did when I had taken over um, this role was previous to this this one was I did a, a, a ton of research and a ton of benchmarking. I mean, I knew it's a part of it is to know your audience, know your executives, know what they're looking for. Are statistics going to work? Do you just keep sending them every week the newsletter that says, here was the last incident. We're not doing anything. Here's the next incident. We're still not doing anything. That might work for some. It might not work for others. Um, but um, certainly showing the what I call the community of practice, it's a, you know, common term but what are what are your peers doing what are you going to be held to what is the baseline standard so because if, if you can't convince them um, via the duty of care standard or uh, show them uh, you know the other really good resource here is the this there is a standard there's a workplace violence standard published by the american society of industrial security who partnered with um, society of human resources and it's a standard it's, there's i think five key elements you should have for a workplace violence and prevention program so if you can't convince them using here's a standard that we can be held to here's uh, you know osha that we could potentially be held to so if your compliance argument isn't winning you know move into the benchmark argument here's what our peers are doing here's what the financial sector is doing or here's what similar sized uh, facilities are doing here's what open and open office environments are versus closed office environments because there's different risks and there's different exposures to those environments and i know sometimes going to executives and explaining here's what can happen and you're, you're fighting against the ostrich with the head in the sand mentality it can't happen here or we're not like them you know we're not raytheon we don't have those types of facilities all right well look at these types of facilities and the same risks that they face and, 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 and using that as a, as a baseline to go, here's the base elements they have and how like we are against that peer group um, to help your argument a little bit more. Excellent. Especially because if you don't have a security manager or even security guards at your facility, which you know some of them might be small and some of your companies might be small to medium to large. So using the similar company, similar risk kind of mentality to match your severity likelihood matrix um, it goes a long way in educating, you know, or at least winning that argument that we should do something more if you're not. Absolutely. And IFMA Boston can help figure out who similar companies are if you're struggling with um, finding, you know, kind of like size organizations um, delivering uh, similar services. We're, we're happy to help with that. Um, we've talked a little bit uh, about open office environments now. We've touched on it a couple of times. Here we are. Everybody happens to be in them nowadays. You know, it seems like the economy is driving us towards this densification of space, which means the offices and kind of hiding places are going away. What do we do? You know, it's funny, David, if you don't mind. Uh, when I was working with our design at construction engineers on space design. And, and this was the craze. It was the push, right? Open office environments were taking down the cubicles. We're um, moving towards more open environments where people can kind of come in and out. We don't want a lot of security. Maybe, maybe one front layer so that everybody kind of gets in is checked. But then after that, kind of everything's open. I mean, again, you need to map it against the risks. So, you know, working with your security departments or your legal counsel to understand what are your risks, what's your standard of care, what do you want your duty of care to look like, and to David's point, working with your local law enforcement to understand if you are taking reasonable precautions. But there's an interesting argument about the open office design being um, adverse to security when it comes to these types of things. Um, I could look at it the flip side and say that, well, you've increased your sight lines Oh, thank goodness. You know, you've, increased, you've increased your sight lines for the ability to be more aware. So when we talk about training and run, hide, fight, a lot of it's based on situational awareness, paying attention to your surroundings, knowing what's going on, not walking across the street with your head in your cell phone, right? Not walking down the um, hallways trying to text so that you're kind of always aware where your exits are, what's going on around you. So that's a lot of run, hide, fight training is, is, is around situational awareness and um, open office environments can give you that ability to be more situationally aware. You can be more observant. You can see what's coming. You can see. And it also, it also can give you more ability to egress, more ability to get to that emergency exit faster than having to duck and weave through different cubicles and, and the old design. So interesting. I think there's a 
you know, no matter what office environment we go to, and, and I was reading a Wall Street Journal article a week ago about the office of the future, and it was this kind of life cycle and how you'd come in and there's there were showers available, there's a meeting space, there's a social space, but then there's heads down spaces where you can kind of go in and lock yourself in and, and do this work. So, you know, the work's always going to continue to evolve. The, the best advice that I got and that I tried to bring was partnering with the folks that are driving that employee experience is very important because they're the ones that are going to buy in or not buy into your program and be the roadblocks. So if you have somebody who's in HR or enterprise services or global business services, whatever you want to call the the function, if they're the ones responsible for real estate and they're getting the mandate to make um, themselves more competitive, to attract more talent, retain talent through this type of office design, design whatever it is, open, closed, um, the new the new age, um, partnering with them on what does that look like from a security perspective and, and how do we then work together to make sure we get what we need um, for um, prevention of continued um, security threats and, and or responding to them. Yeah, so mitigating that risk, in other words. If you're partnering up, it doesn't necessarily mean that that environment type is a bad one, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, I mean, I th- always in security, we would say we're here to advise on the risks and I think as the facility managers that might be listening to this, you know, for your facility, that's what your job is. You're, you're responsible for those lives that are in your facility. So how do you make sure you're getting the point across to the right stakeholders of here are the risks based on what you're trying to do or what the, what the desire is for, for this space? And, um, and then partnering with them on mitigating those risks or, or using everything we've talked about, law enforcement, peers, to help educate them on here's why it's not a great idea to not have access control, you know. All right, super. Well, we've got lots of folks out there listening to this, and I bet they're asking, when are you going to talk about technology? And is technology the answer to all of my security issues? Um, What are you guys seeing out there that you think is good, bad, you're neutral on? Well, I'll jump in here, and from my perspective, and again, I'm not in security. I work very closely with them. We're low tech when it comes to um, how we recognize situations or if a situation should um, evolve or develop. Um, we're very low tech when um, we come to that. We, we've trained everyone on the public address system. That's probably the one thing that someone's going to be able to run far enough away and jump on and hit the um, play button and say, active shooter, run, hide, fight, uh, wearing a black hooded sweatshirt and jeans located in the northwest quadrant, stay away, tell others, run, hide, fight. And we got that direction um, from some of the police departments that came in, um, you've got these wonderful um, alert notification systems where you can uh, hit all your employees uh, in your organization with an alert that will ring their office phone, ring their cell phone, hit their email, text message all at once. And the reality is that um, most of us aren't going to have the time to find a computer. You're going to be running away from your office space and a computer and type something out and And actually hopefully not scrolling through your text messages while you're running. That might not be a good use of your time, actually. Right. I will say this, that if you do have a good alert service, um, ours, we've actually figured out um, sort of a, a nice little shortcut we can call them and just have them send out the alert for us. So if your alert notification company offers that, and we tell that to our site leads, um, you know, get out of the building and call the company. They'll vet you and identify you and make sure you are who you say you are. And then tell them, I want an alert sent out to this site, all employees, and they'll get it out for you. So that's sort of a secondary kind of thing. I mean, we can get more technical with um, 
shot spotter and boomerang and things like that. Ryan, you have some ideas about shot spotter, don't you? Well, I don't know if it was that specifically, but I remember talking earlier that, and I agree with David, I think keep it simple. Um, you know, back to that whole argument of that these things are over in less than five minutes. Um, you know, alerting technology is great, and I think you want to have it. You want to check the box that I've accomplished my duty to warn, that I'm trying to get the message out. You know, the PA system's a great, a great piece to that. You know, because even with your alerting system, one of the things found when we looked into it and we had to text message your system is, you know, are you capturing your visitors? Are you capturing contractors, people that might not be in your HR system that are coming into that? So how do you get everybody that's in the building? Well, the best way is through your public address system, if you have one or if you have the luxury of having one. And then how do you have the ability to get to it? Have you piped in a you know remote access so you, the facility manager can just pick up the phone and start the message or do they have to go to a closet? So there's all those considerations to it and it does cost a lot of money to get put all that in place when when again it boils down to getting people out of the building as fast as possible. Not, you know so that we went we looked at the gunshot detection you know technology which I thought was interesting it, it kind of blew up um, you know a few years ago when there was a bunch of incidents that were rolling around and um, you know, it can detect the muzzle flash and the sound, and you can put these detectors everywhere in the building, and it'll tell the security operations center exactly where it detected, and it can start sending those texts out to everybody on their phones or on their computers. Very, very complicated. And, and you know, it may work. It does. It, the one thing I will say it can do is get law enforcement coming faster because it can, you know, alert them instead of waiting on the 911 call. Um, but outside of that, we felt it was, you know, expensive to try and cover every aspect of a facility, number one, to put these almost like fire fire system detectors everywhere um but that uh it would only do a gunshot right and we talked very early on in this conversation of it being active assailant so you know there's more things that can harm your employees than just somebody with it with a gun so uh, again it comes back to that that training uh, that first responder gap of what's the mental agility of your folks to know what to do when they're what we say on the x when they're basically um, facing that life or limb situation and know, and giving them the ability to know what to do and how that works within your facility. Those are really both good points. I mean, if you have this really super expensive technology, but you haven't invested in any training, then it's you've still got a situation where you have employees, visitors, friends, deer in the headlights. They don't. They haven't been told how to manage the situation, what to do under these circumstances. And so they're still at risk, right? Um, I think it makes sense. And if there are really large organizations that have unlimited budgets, who knows who they are, um, they might augment their other programs using technology like this, right? I'll, uh, I'll add a funny story when it comes to ShotSpotter. So that was Raytheon Technology from BBN in Cambridge, and we sold it off. Um, and I don't, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but probably three, four years ago, security invited myself and my teammate to a presentation, and it was those gentlemen selling, trying to sell us ShotSpotter back for our facility. And uh, it was just interesting the irony of the whole you know, situation. That's and, pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So all, all good points of discussion. I want to ask what you found out in the training that you didn't expect to learn from it. Was there anything that ended up being a surprise to either of you? The, the one, I don't know if this was a surprise so much, because um, we did talk about it right before we rolled it out, but it is something to be aware of, is um, an immense increase in reporting. So I think you get what you want out of it, unfortunately or fortunately. Um, but when we had rolled out the training to the general population, one of the things we did talk about was we, we would track anytime someone reported a threat, whether it was a customer or it was a disgruntled employee. Um, and that increased after the training, which I think is what you want. You want that awareness. You want that to, to, to kind of come up. So it, not that it wasn't expected. I think we, we talked about that being a potential um, that could throw our metrics off, so to speak. Um, but now everybody had a, a more of a general awareness. And um, I think it did what it was supposed to do, which was cause that increase in reporting. Now, were we getting false positives? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but um, better to know um, and, and investigate versus and then not, not know. 
did HR or people services complain about something similar saying all of a sudden you've done this PSA campaign on you know see something say something and I got a weird look from you know my coworker, and plus they broke up with their boyfriend last night or last week and what do you think is this person going to be a threat did things like that increase as a result or not they did they did and you know it, it's you know I call it, it was similar to, and uh, if everybody remembers 9-11, after 9-11, there was an immense increase in reporting, um, you know, from, from everything under the sun, whether it was, I, I, I see this going on, or I see this type of person over here. And some of that, you know, is you got to weed through that to figure out, you know, if there's any actual threat in there. But, you know, I think the, to, to navigate that question, I think the important part was the, the building the coalition with HR up front and including them on what the message was in the training so that they were they were kind of bought into it. Um, the HR thing's a, a great example of how a holistic program really needs to work because um, use restraining orders as, as an example. Um, you know, you need to have policy, right? Workplace oh, sure. violence policy. And does that workplace violence policy cover employees self-reporting when they've taken out restraining orders and they name the workplace as a potential point of that restraining order. Mm -hmm. That's something the facility manager should know or the security officer should know is if there's nobody allowed within a certain number of feet from this building. So that needs to be in your policy. And then, and, and likewise, you want to have a process where the HR manager is reporting to facilities or to security that so-and-so's taken out a restraining order and here's the information, here's what the person looks like and this is what you need. To, so that's how the relationship needs to work together to go from policy and prevention all the way to, to response, you know, when that person shows up on the property. So... Um, it's a good example of just, you know, how you need to build a coalition and have the right resources at the, at the front end so that they're not complaining on the back end. Yeah, you've really supported this idea of partnerships, and I can see how important it is both internally and externally. It really does take a village to protect the populace. Hey, it's Tom, Chapter President of IFMA Boston. Thanks for listening. I'll get you back to the content in just a minute, but I'd like to take this time to connect the dots, if you will, between this podcast series and our FM Forward Live event. A while back, we challenged our volunteers to explore the concept of a one-day conference specifically for facility managers. Was it feasible? Was there interest? And if so, what would it look like? The consensus answer was yes, but with a specific goal in mind, to give FMs an opportunity to see hear, and share the real stories about what they're facing now and in the future. Out of this came the concept for FM Forward and its tagline, Learn What's Next. We see FM Forward as a brand that offers valuable experiences for your career. The podcasts and the live event are meant to complement each other and help you in your profession. We hope that it'll evolve over time and it can be a new way for you to get value from your FM membership. So keep listening and definitely join us for the FM Forward live event. This year's conference is on March 31st in Waltham, Mass. And best of all, for professional members, it's free. Check out the lineup on fmforward.org or ifmaboston.org. And here's a tip. Register soon, because it will sell out. Okay, back to the show. So I wanted to ask... Um, What's a common myth about active assailant training that you can perhaps debunk for us today? Well, one of the things that I'll uh, I'll share is, you know, we, as Ryan said, it, it's a holistic approach. It's not just workplace violence response; it's prevention, and that gets into, um, you know, the see something, say something. We do want people to come forward when they notice that a coworker seems a little more upset than typical, and and that's important. And it, you know, one of the things I've always said is um, behavioral health is the third rail of, you know, active assailants. And you can get up in the morning, you can have a fight at your at your home with your partner. You can drive into work. You hit a pothole, you get a flat tire, you get into work late. As soon as you get into work late, your boss calls you in. You've been taken off a program. Your day started off pretty good. 
and it just went downhill real fast. And so we're all in a continuum. And, you know, for me, um, that's one of the things that um, has become apparent in the training, just that, that um, wellness piece of employees and, and, you know, the ability to, if you can, um, create some kind of community involvement in the workplace, which becomes a challenge with, I see millennials walking around with the earbuds in their ears, um, with looking down at their phone. And, you know, you think to yourself, geez, if something really happened, you know, would they, would they know? And so that, you know, from that perspective and that, that's a real interest for me, the psychology behind active assailant. Um, I have a, a friend who um, worked for the National Cathedral, Georgetown University and the FBI. And um, he, he does wonderful presentations on this. Um, and it's just, it's, it's just very interesting how it's not just someone that, well, he has a history of, of mental illness. You know, he or she has been in treatment it could be any one of us that just has a series of bad and unfortunate things happen during the day and someone says or does the wrong thing and, and pushes someone, you know, over that line. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, to expand on that with the common myth, I think the, the biggest hurdle to overcome is, is the kind of the demystifying of it. it. It's, it seems so when you talk about active assailant or active shooter, especially to companies or executives that, it hasn't haven't experienced it or, or are not in tune to it um, the way the way a lot of us risk thinkers are. Um, it's hard for them to wrap their heads around that such a kind of visceral topic or something so sensational. Um, so, you know, active assailant, an active shooter, you know, it shouldn't really be any different than any other crisis you're training for. I mean, like we mentioned the fire training examples and the bomb threat training examples, but, you know, any type of crisis that, that could hit your facility and your population, it's just it's just the type that, that might affect it. And I know the severity and the likelihood can change, but if you look at the world these days, and we were talking about coronavirus just before this call, um, you know, there's medical crises. There was, you know, protests in Hong Kong where they were lighting campuses on fire. Um, and all these are going to need an element of employees knowing what to do at that moment and a lot of it generally boils down to you know shelter in place or evacuate or uh, my life's really on the line and i need to do something about it so those three principles i think still apply to any individual for any situation really and it's just gonna empowering them to know which one to use for which situation is is what i think is the is the, really you know to answer the problem physical I security measures technology measures all that stuff we can we can do that until the cows come home but again like you had mentioned if the employee doesn't know what to do with it or how to optimize it when they're in that situation um they're just a deer in the headlights to your point yeah yeah well, oh. i'm i'm sorry i uh david i just want to say yep. ever so quickly as we have to begin to wrap up here um that i take the run hide um fight tip that you just provided, Ryan, as an excellent beginning basis of any training program that a company might um, decide to engage in. David, tell me um, one uh, or two of your final um, parting tips for our audience today. Well, again, um, Run, Hide, Fight is a great place to start. Ready Houston has a free video that's out there. That's something that you can write to them and get a DVD or um, it's online everywhere. It's on YouTube, about six minutes. And if you can get that into some kind of online training module at your place of work, it's a fantastic place to start. Um, with regard to um, other tips, one of the things that um, our security partners tell us is um, your body won't go where it hasn't been before. And that's one of the reasons why we started doing functional and full-scale exercises. We wanted to give our employees more of a feel for what does it sound like? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, because people f uh, flight, fight, or freeze. And so 
again, if you haven't thought about what you're going to do and if you haven't done it, you know, there's a good chance that when the real thing happens, you know, you won't. Right. That is an excellent point. So maybe if your organization doesn't have the financial resources to do a full-fledged active program, you could at least run them through drills of different points of safe egress. Yeah, you can do low-intensity drills, too. You know, I'll share that our West Coast site started out with a tabletop discussion, and when our site preparedness coordinator called me and said, I just can't engage these folks anymore on a tabletop discussion. I said, well, let's do something a little more active. And so we did low intensive, uh, a low-intensity active shooter drill. No police, no law enforcement. Um, we did a training. We showed them run, hide, fight. And we said, here's what it looks like. Here are the run rules. The shooter will come in wearing a red hat. And we had the um, site executive come in with you know, one of our hats. And the drill commenced. And about 17 people ran up to him and said, hey, there's an active shooter here. And he handed out a, a green dot and said, you're dead. You're dead. You're dead. And so you can do very low intensity. They're like, let's start over. I didn't know we were really <laughs> beginning this. Yeah, I mean, you learned. We've learned to work with what we have. Yeah. So, yeah. Very, very good advice, gentlemen. I want to thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your years and years of experience with active shooters and active incident training with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We want to thank you for listening today. Visit ifmaboston.org slash podcast to see all of the show notes and any resources discussed in the episode. I'm your host, Jackie Falla, and this is FM Forward, where if you're an FM, buildings are assets, and it's your job to keep people happy or at least happily working. Until next time.